Amen. Hey, thank you, Kevin. Well, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at GPC. Uh, thanks for being here. Happy New Year's to you guys. Ooh, good. Thank you very much. Hey, I, for one, I am sad that Christmas is over. All right, Greg can be the Scrooge and the spoils board around here, but I am, I am sad that it's over. Although, I have to ask you the question, in what year, in what year does both Christmas and New Year's happen in the same year? And the answer, of course, is every year. That's right, every year. It's going to take a minute for some of you, but <laughs> believe me, Christmas will happen in 2023. It's just going to be later, and New Year's is now, and it's coming later. Okay, it, it was late for some of you last night, wasn't it? It was really late. It was really, really late. Hey, I got woken up somewhere around midnight with fireworks outside my bedroom window, literally outside my bedroom window. So anyhow, that's the way it goes. But Happy New Year, everybody. Um, I will say as we move on from Christmas, I always just want to take a minute and say thank you um, as a church family for your generosity and kindness uh, to our family, um, but also as a church body. Um, what you've done in the past month in terms of your generosity and giving to this church and to its ministry is really something that I don't ever uh, take for granted, and it really means a lot uh, for us. So I just want to thank you uh, for your kindness and generosity over the Christmas season. Uh, but we are starting a new year now, and, and with that, uh, you know, everything is up and to the right. And if you haven't set your New Year's resolutions yet, um, I'm here to help you this morning, all right? So, so here's the deal. Here's what we're going to start with New Year's resolutions. Here's my list of achievable 2023 New Year's resolutions. If you don't have any, you can follow that list right there. That's it. I'm not adding anything to the slide. That's it. That's the end of it. <laughs> Or you can also go this way with the resolutions. Maybe you can relate to this guy, right? Yeah, if we could just not worry about New Year's resolutions this year and just focus on surviving, that would be great, right? You ever feel that way about the New Year's? I know I do sometimes. Or how about this one? I love this one. I don't call them New Year's resolutions. I prefer the term casual promises to myself that I'm under no legal obligation to fulfill, right? I mean, that would work. And finally, I mean, this is the smartest one of all, I think, and it's simply this. Don't, you don't worry about breaking your New Year's resolutions if you don't make any. All right, there you go. You don't break what you don't make, so there you go. So New Year's resolutions, I don't know if you make them or not, but it's an interesting time here in this New Year's um, when we kind of move on from the past is what it kind of feels like. Everything is new and fresh, and, you know, the old is gone, and, you know, in, in has come the new, and, and here we go. We're going to start with new things, and if you're as old as I am, and some of you actually might be just a hair older, and many are younger, believe it or not, um, at some point in your life you realize, of course, that Simply turning the calendar one day further doesn't really get rid of the past. It, it can be a good time for, you know, recommitments and starting something new. But in truth, it's a day later than it was yesterday. And in our past, God doesn't really go away. It kind of stays with us. And I love the way William Faulkner put this. And some of you know this quote from Faulkner. I, I love it. It's powerful in its simplicity. He said, the past isn't dead. It isn't even past. The past isn't dead, it isn't even past, and I would argue that's true for me and, and true for you. The past is what happened in 2022 and, and earlier and earlier and earlier. It's not dead. In fact, it's not even past. It, it sits with me and, and sits with you. And as much as I want to turn the corner to a new year, a new me, a new you, the past is still with me. It's not, certainly not dead, and in many cases, it's not even past. And what I want to talk about in this uh, brand new series we're in is the power in some ways of rediscovering some of what has made us who we are in light of our past. There's a Christian therapist named Adam Young. I've recommended him to some of you personally and to all of you kind of corporately before. And Adam Young has a podcast that he calls um, The Place We Find Ourselves. And in that, Adam Young does a great job, I think, in laying out some of our own history and our own present and how we interact with God from where we've come from. 
And in there, he does a podcast on the idea of implicit and explicit memory. And in there, he talks about implicit memory as unconscious memory, whereas explicit memory is conscious memory. Here's what he means by that. Implicit memory are those things um, which I don't have the sensation of remembering, but I know what to do with them. In other words, when you get on a bicycle, rare is the person who gets on a bike after not riding, riding it for five or ten years and remembers, oh, I'm so glad I remember how to ride a bike. <laughs> no, you just get on and, and ride it. It's implicit or unconscious memory. Explicit memory is the kind of memory you have when you studied for a test, and the next day, on question number eight, you recall, oh, I studied for that one, and it comes back to you. You have the sensation of remembering. Both of us, we, we have both implicit and explicit memory in our bodies all the time. If someone has ever accused you of having a reaction too strong for the moment, where everyone in the room seems chill and you hear the same news and all of a sudden your anxiety peaks or you start to get angry or you lash out, and you're the only one in the group who does that, why is that? Are you crazy? No, well, maybe, but no. What that is is implicit memory. There's something that you unconsciously are recalling from your past that is still driving your present, that is making you react in a way that no one else is reacting in the room. Why? Because you have an experience. You have a memory from your past that is coming into your present, and you don't consciously remember it, but it is driving you. Implicit versus explicit memory. Now, what in the world does this have to do with anything? What does this have to do with church? What does this have to do with God? What does this have to do with faith? I would argue that for all of us, we have an implicit memory, an explicit memory about how we function in our faith, how we see God, how we see the church, how we see a community of faith. And that I would also argue this, that, that our implicit memory, the things that we have experienced from our past, which is certainly not dead and not is, isn't even past, the things we've experienced from our past are influencing our view of God, faith, and the community of faith even more even more than a Bible verse, for example. Even more naturally and in a deeper part of our soul than just a passage of Scripture. That we are deeply impacted and deeply influenced by our past and how it still plays forward into our present today. So if you've had an experience with a father who's been angry or alcoholic and he lashes out and you have no idea why or when, your reaction to the idea that there can be a loving Heavenly Father who is consistent and faithful and loves you no matter what, you're going to have a harder time. You know this, right? You're going to have a harder time recovering from that and learning and being able to accept that that is actually true. If you've grown up with a mom who's critical, you're going to have a hard time believing that your value and worth isn't tied to your performance and that you don't have to be perfect. Have you ever gotten ready for a prom as a girl and come down the steps and your dad has looked at you and said, really, you're wearing that? when really what you needed was just an affirmation of how beautiful you are, and you have those experiences over and over and over again, how well do you think you'll be able to embrace the intimacy of a Heavenly Father who loves you and knows you? See, your implicit memory, the things that you've experienced, not only in your childhood, but also in your past, in the recent past, and even in the distant past, I am convinced drive us more than we are willing to realize sometimes, both implicitly and explicitly. Now, we're in this brand new series, I'm calling it Backstory here, because in this series on Backstory, what we're trying to do is I want to invite you to your own story. Here at Grace Point, we talk about every story matters. 
We believe that your story seriously matters and how God has shaped you and wired you and moved you and all that matters significantly for this world and it helps you and me understand who we are corporately and who I am in relation to God. And so in this series, we want to invite you to your own personal story while we reflect on the stories of Old Testament characters or people who've walked through some significant things. And so we're gonna, I'm going to invite you throughout this series to recall, to reflect some moments in your own life that are driving the way that you see your own faith right now by using, by using Old Testament characters and people that many of you are familiar with as a place or a foil or someone to think about to help us learn how we can grow together. And so that's my hope in the series, is that what we can do is we can see some of the things that really drive our faith, that drive our um, passions, convictions, our struggles, our hang-ups, and even in a deeper way, how redemption is a more powerful storyline than tragedy. Okay. Now, going forward today, here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk today about Adam. Some of you have heard about him before, all right? And, and this, is a, this is an origin story today. This is where it all starts and where it all comes from. And so I want to ask this question of you to start in this series. And this question is put this way. If I could ask this question to you and to me, what shapes my sense of value and worth? It's a super big question. What shapes my sense of value and worth? Truly, if you had a moment to think about what is it really that shapes my sense of my value and worth, how would you answer that? Now, let me help you with that for a minute. As I reflect in my own story, here's what I've come to terms with, that my value and worth was shaped in places where I was rewarded or reprimanded. That's my experience, okay? That's not a clinical answer. That's just Tim Rogers. You can agree or disagree on how you relate to that. Here's what I mean by that. Um, let me just give you some examples. I remember growing up in the Caribbean, parents were missionaries, and some of you know that, grew up in Barbados. Um, we had what was called a sword drill at church in Barbados. Anyone ever do a sword drill before? A couple of you, some of you like, that was a very violent childhood you had in church, wasn't it? Then? So um, a sword drill is simply, um, it's a competition to see who can find a scripture passage the fastest and get up and read it. And so me, I would sit there with my Sunday school peers and we would sit up, there was like a choir area. I'm standing at the front of the church now, if you're the congregation, there's a choir area right up here um, to your left. And we would sit there, you know, eight, 10, 15 of us, while someone would stand here and read out a passage of scripture. And it would be 2 Corinthians 8, Four. And then what did they say? Draw? Is that what they said? I think it was like draw or no, it was charge. Charge is what it was. Uh, I, the military overtones are terrible, but anyhow, be that as it may. So as soon as we hear charge, then what we do is we charge into the, we have our Bible set up, we're holding it up like this and so no one's cheating, right? And we drop it down and flip it open. The, the first one to get the second Corinthians 8, 4, they, they stand up and they start reading, and hopefully they get it right. Sometimes people get to 1 Corinthians 8.4 instead, or 2 Corinthians 7.4 instead, or whatever. And so if they're not right, then you get up, and you get to shame them by your awesomeness and all that. So I remember, like, I felt, and I, I, I <laughs> so I was competitive. So this, like, stirred me, right? I'm like, fine, like, I'm going to win. I'm going to beat you all. Like, I mean, that's kind of what it was. It was there was no godliness to it. It was just like, I'm, I'm going to win. And so what I would often do is like, well, what I realized is that my peers wouldn't stand up until they actually had it, like actually open in their Bible. So I'm like, ha ha, 
I'm going to get up and continue looking for it while I stand. Uh, you know, so that's what I'm going to do to win. And, and I would do that. And so I would often, I would often get a chance to stand and I would, I would win the sword drill often. Uh, and I also felt uh, this implied pressure that I should win anyway because I'm the missionary kid, right? I'm also, in that environment, I'm the only white kid. So here I stand out, right? I stand out. The only white kid, missionary kid, you're the one who should get it. And when I got it, you know what I was? Rewarded. Rewarded. <laughs> That's great. Good job. Good job. You get to move on to our next round. The others get to sit down. I was rewarded for my spiritual awesomeness. Right? I was rewarded. And I began those experiences cumulative over time. I began to feel a sense of reward when I was successful, even in a spiritual realm. When I went to college and got into leadership opportunities there, I was rewarded. People thought well of me. They gave me, literally gave me awards. I mean, that's about as clear as you can get. Awards, you're rewarded. A graduation in other places, you know, for what you do and for what you do. And so what I began to have my value and worth shaped by is this belief that I am a accumulation, an accumulation of my uh, performance and that my worth and value are tied directly to how well I can, um, can perform and execute and, and be a good leader. And that, that what rewarded, what's rewarded gets repeated. You may have heard that over and over again. It's a good business principle. What's rewarded gets repeated. So I just kept doing that. And so my value and worth was shaped early on and implicitly by what I could do for you and how well I could perform. Simple as that. And where I was reprimanded, now I hated to get in trouble, but where I was reprimanded was often um, when I disappointed people or when silence took over. Like when I learned that I listened to or watched the wrong things, um, you know, got in a little bit of trouble for some of that sometimes, and I began to see, okay, there's certain things to, to avoid, and I don't want to disappoint people. So in, in other words, what I really need to do is I need to, to hide a lot of what I do so people don't find out what I do because I don't want to be reprimanded. And so my sense of value and worth was, was shaped a lot around what I can do for you and how well I could perform. And I was reprimanded, if you will, around things that I did wrong, and so I just wanted to, to hide them. And so I was more valuable and worthwhile if I thought I could continue to be to you someone who could be counted on, someone who didn't do anything wrong, and someone who just could always perform, all right? So when I think about my own story, my value and worth was shaped in places where I was rewarded or reprimanded, all right? Now, I want to ask you the question, if you could take a minute, if you could take a minute and review some of your own story, what would you say to this question? What shaped, what shapes my sense and your sense of value and worth? And believe it or not, we're actually going to do audience participation. I'm going to come around with a microphone. We're all going to share this morning. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. But I am going to give you just 30 seconds right here to just reflect privately. What shapes your value and worth for real? Not what you think it should, but what it really does. What moments, experiences, maybe it's what you felt rewarded by or what you tried to avoid. Those things shape your sense of value and worth. What shapes your sense of value and worth. So just take a second. I'm going to give you a moment, and I'll jump right back in here in a second.
right? If I give you too much longer, some of you may fall asleep with the silence after a late night last night. So keep that in your mind because we're going to come back to that. I'm going to invite you to come back to where you were, okay? So here's the deal. Um, as I think about value and worth, um, we're going to jump into the scriptures here in just a second. So if you want, you can start turning to Genesis chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn there. If you don't own one, there's one in the, the chair near you. Uh, this is the very beginning of our Bible now, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look just at the beginning creation account, as we call it. But I would want to make the case that um, I think value and worth is tied to basically, I'll call it essence or nature. In other words, if, if we're Whirlpool or GE and we make washing machines, that the value and worth of the washing machine will be determined on whether or not it actually washes clothes. Like a, a, a broken washing machine, you can do stuff with it. You can fold clothes on top of it. I don't know what else you can do with it. But, uh, but you know, the, the, the value and worth of what is a washing machine is really determined on does it do what it's supposed to do? Does it function in its essence or its nature in what it's supposed to be? And so when I think of value and worth, I think of what is the nature or the essence of humanity. So I am thinking about what, what does it actually mean for me, maybe what does it mean for you to actually be, be human? to be human. Is there value and worth to our humanity, and how do we describe that? So some people might say, well, here's the deal. Like, if God created everything, the distinction for humanity is that we have a will, we have emotions, compared to like a mountain or trees don't have will or emotions, right? But then I might also say, well, animals have that as well, right? I mean, my dog certainly has a will, and I think has some emotion, not to the degree that, that I might have, but has some. But then some might say, well, fine, if we want to separate man from animals, then let's talk about what really separates us, and that is our moral capacity and maybe our, our sinfulness, okay? So I would say that when my dog is bad, I don't ever say my dog has been sinful. <laughs> Just say bad dog or good dog, right? But I never say sinful dog, holy dog, right? I mean, I, I don't, don't do that, right? It's just not the way it works. But, so I would argue that for many of us, and many maybe for you, your experience is that what distinguishes us and really, really what makes me human is, is that I'm a sinner and that, that you are too. And then that's where I have come from. That what distinguishes our humanity, in fact, maybe, maybe, maybe what sets us apart and maybe the answer to the question of what is the essence of humanity might be that you're a sinner and that I am too. In fact, it's something that the Bible says we all share. In Romans chapter 3, put it this way, Paul writes and said, there's no one righteous, not even one, there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Isn't that encouraging for New Year's Day? Check out Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the way I grew up, again, this is part of my story. It's maybe different than yours. I, I grew up with a strong belief in what we call in the theological world the total depravity of man, meaning that we are, as human beings, completely sinful from birth and by the nature of our deep sinfulness, we are separated from God and unable on our own to come to him. He is the one who awakens our soul. He is the one who gives us breath and, and moves us to want him even at all. And so if I want to step to God, my theological framework was the only reason I want to step toward God is because God first breathed through his spirit in me an awakening of my dead soul, which on its own had no capacity to come to him. And God brought me in by his kind mercy. And this is the framework that I grew up in. For those of you who know these terms, we're talking about what's called Calvinistic or Arminian theology. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of that except to say this. 
if one guy walks down the steps and falls down the steps, you know what the Arminian says? They say, hey, I got to be more careful going down the steps next time. The Calvinist says, thank God that's over with. They believe that God orchestrates everything. That's where the Calvinist is. Like, oh, well, that was destined to happen. I'm glad that's over with. <laughs> we'll go on to the next thing. Where's the Armenians? Like, well, let me, let me take some responsibility and say I shouldn't be you know, on my phone next time I fall down the steps, going down the steps. It's my fault. So I grew up in a place, an environment where in my formal training, in my church environment, where, where I grew up, that the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man was, was always around me. And that's kind of what I, what I learned. In fact, some of you have heard the phrase, why is it that God allows bad things to happen to good people? You ever hear that before? Has anyone ever heard that before? All right. Now, you know what my instinctive reaction is to that and has been? Immediately, this is implicit memory now, immediately, there's no such thing as good people. Why do bad things happen to good people? There's no such thing as good people. Give me another question. Meaning that goodness, like that, that's just, I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. I'm just saying that's my implicit memory. That's the instinct. Some of you think that's great. Some of you are like, man, that's terrible to grow up like that. I'm just telling you what it is. This is where I've come from, that sin and, and our, our fallenness is so significant, that it so deeply shapes our character, that this defines, this defines our human experience, that we are by definition as humans sinful. I have nuanced my view over the years. I have nuanced my view. And it's coming from Genesis chapter 1, from the backstory of Adam. And to get into that, look at verse 26. I'm going to read it in a second. Um, but before I do, I need to say this about this section of Scripture. It's really important when you read Scripture to ask the question, why is it here? What did the author intend for this part of Scripture? What did he intend for the original audience to understand? And so when I read Genesis 1... A lot of us are used to bringing 21st century questions into Genesis 1. We want to know, how was the world created? Is this a literal seven-day creation, or is it something else? And we have to ask the question, are those the questions that Moses, when he wrote this, was trying to answer? Did he have a 21st century scientific worldview when he wrote Genesis chapter 1? And if he didn't, then who is he writing to, and what is he trying to do with who, is he, who he's writing to? And I would argue that Moses is writing to the people of Israel after they have left Egypt. The exodus of Egypt has been over. They've been in captivity. They've moved on. There's a whole generation of people who have been raised with an Egyptian mindset. And there's an Egyptian way to explain how the world works. There's Egyptian gods. There's even an Egyptian creation account, which mirrors almost perfectly the Genesis account. Almost perfectly. And what I would argue that Moses is trying to do is he's writing almost a discipleship manual, if you will, for the Israelites coming out of the exodus of Egypt, trying to help them understand how is it that we see that God relates to creation, who is not the God of the Egyptians, but who is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he tells the story of creation and Adam and Eve, and he tells the story of Abraham of Isaac, of Jacob, and Joseph, and the patriarchs of the faith, to disciple the next generation who's coming out of an Egyptian worldview and training to help them understand how God relates to our people. With that in mind, read Genesis 1, 28 with me, or follow along as I read. 
we read here in 26 and 28 how Moses is describing how God interacts with the world. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, what we see here is that God is a personal creator God involved in the creation, caring for what he has made and who he has made to the point where he's not a distant, far-off God, but a near God who has decided, in my image, I'm going to make these people. This is how Moses describes and introduces the people of Israel to God as one who's a loving, involved, engaged Heavenly Father who's created. If you fast forward to chapter 3, I don't have time to read it this morning. Chapter 3 of Genesis describes what we call the fall of man. This is where the, the story of the serpent coming in and deceiving Eve and Adam and they eat the fruit. We often think of it as an apple and they, they fall into sin and then the whole world is impacted by that and women will have pains in childbirth and men will have a hard time working the ground. And This is where sin and pain and, and evil is introduced into the creation narrative. And so the question becomes, as you think about humanity, why do I say all this? We go back to the backstory, the question of origin. When you think about humanity, where is, where is humanity anchored? Where's the essence of humanity anchored? You might be like, what are you asking, Tim? <laughs> I would argue this. I would argue this. That our humanity is not anchored to Genesis 3, but to Genesis 1. Our humanity isn't anchored to Genesis 3, but to Genesis 1. Genesis 3 is a story about how we're all sinners and where sin came from. And how it does indeed impact all of us. And I would believe the scriptures that I'm still born in sin. I have no problem with that. But if I go further back... Moses doesn't introduce to the nation of Israel humanity that's first of all broken and first of all sinful. It's almost as if he's, can you imagine for a minute Whirlpool putting out washing machines and all of them are broken. You might be able to imagine that if you had a Whirlpool, right? But they, they come off the assembly line all the time, always broken. Like they've never worked from the beginning. Can you imagine that? No, no, that's just the way it works. They're going to break, they will. But they don't start broken. They don't start broken, but brokenness plagues them all at some point. And humanity is the same way, I would argue. We, don't, we are not defined by being sinful. I would argue this, that the, the essence of humanity is the image of God, not the sinfulness of man. This is what distinguishes me and you as being human. This is what distinguishes me and you as being human, that you are made and I am made in the image of God. That is what it means to be human. That is where value and worth comes from. Before sin, being fully human, being fully human means that you are an image bearer of God. You have to ask the question, was Adam fully human before the fall? Absolutely. Ask another question. Was Jesus fully human? And if you say no, then our entire salvation is at stake. If we say no then that is what the church fathers will call heresy. Christianity has taught historically Jesus fully God and fully man. How can someone be fully human and not have sin? Unless what it means to be human is not to be a sinner. What it means to be human is to be an image bearer of God. 
then you can be fully, fully, fully human and not sin. Now, I would argue this. When you go to the backstory of Adam and you see his value and worth, it's not, first of all, because he's been smart enough and strong enough and can perform enough so that he can be presentable and work through his sin and be a reputable young man who grows a strong family and works hard. Way to go, Adam. But that his value and worth starts upon creation. He's an image bearer of God. He's an image bearer of God. He's an image bearer of God. Now, let me go further with this. This impacts how I see God, myself, and others. This impacts how I see God. If I see God, listen, if I see myself as someone who comes off the assembly line already broken, I'm fully engaged in sin. I'm just, that's just the way it is. That's what it means to be human. Here's how I see God. I see God as someone who's constantly looking over my shoulder, ready to judge me, ready to pounce me, almost like a principal in a high school roaming the walls to see when you're going to screw up and when I get to call you in and punish you. Now, that's what happens. If you're, if you're broken all the time, that's, that's what it is. That's a God who's ready to pounce on your brokenness because you need to get it corrected. Come on, fix it. Be stronger, be smarter, be wiser, be softer, be smoother, be calmer, be more compassionate, be more aggressive, be whatever, because you're falling apart. <laughs> or if God is a loving creator who has made me in his image, then I get to respond to that with incredible grace and gratitude. <laughs> what a beautiful thing to understand that God has made me first in his image. It impacts how I see myself. <laughs> For me, I would say... I, I don't need to prove my worth. The kid who would get on the sword drill and want to stand up and perform, I get that. That's kid stuff, and I, I get that. But as an adult, I still do the same things now sometimes. That's an implicit memory thing. It just comes with me now. I still want to perform to please, even to God. But I don't need to. I had the chance a few some time ago, to talk to a child who got in trouble. This is not one of my kids, by the way. Talk to a child who got in trouble. My kids never got in trouble. Um, so, I'm trying to move on from that one. Okay. Um, so, I was talking to this child who got in trouble, and as I was listening to him talk, he recognized the weight of what just happened and, and how what he did caused pain and hurt for the people around him. And, and in his own way, in his own world, he was able to put those thoughts together. And he was feeling really sad really sad, and his head was down, and he was just kind of, uh, and he, in his own words, he was talking about how he disappointed the people around him, and how it's going to take a long time for trust to re be rebuilt, those are my words, but he knew what happened, and it caused everyone hurt around him and all that, and as I was sitting there talking to him, you know what I told him? I said, listen, I'm not disappointed in you at all. I don't feel disappointed. I feel sad. I feel sad, and those are two different things, and here's why I feel sad, because If your value and worth is tied to your performance, then I am disappointed in you. Because you must continue to perform to prove your value and worth. But if your value and worth is that you're made in the image of God, then I feel sad with you that your choice has caused so much pain to you and hurt to people around you. But I'm not disappointed in you. I'm not disappointed in you. I'm sad with you. I feel sad that sin has caused this kind of pain and hurt. Do you see the difference? Do you feel the difference? If I see myself as someone who must perform, who's primarily a sinner and broken off the block, then I'm going to see my value and worth as tied to what I can do and how I can perform over and over and over and over and over again. And it impacts how I see others. Even my enemies, even my greatest enemies, are made in the image of God. Not 
first of all, sinners. Now, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the essence of humanity isn't that we are first of all sinners. It's first of all that we're made in the image of God, and that is Adam's backstory. And so let me go back to this question I asked at the beginning. What shapes your sense of value and worth? What shapes your sense of value and worth for you? Because here's what I would hope would sit in your soul in an uncomfortable way because it's so grace-filled that it would mess with you a little bit, and that is Adam's backstory right here, that a loving God has stamped his image of infinite value on you. A loving God has stamped his image of infinite value on you. Regardless of your sin, regardless of your failure, he has stamped his image of infinite value on you. You are first of all an image bearer of a loving creator. And yes, we have all sinned. And yes, we share that. And yes, our sin keeps us from God. And yes, this is why we need Christ. Paul in Romans talks about Christ as the second Adam. He comes to restore us to what we were pre-fall. To make us, to bring us to the fullness of humanity so that we can experience the kind of relationship with God that we're designed to be because we're image bearers of God, first of all. So I hope that this sits somewhere deep in your soul, that the grace and mercy and kindness of it dysregulates you a little bit, that our performance, our desire to be awesome, sometimes functioning out of a desire to cover our shame and guilt can be melted to the side. You can sit in this for a minute. You, you're an image bearer of a loving creator. He stamped his image of infinite value on you. That's Adam's backstory. And I hope that can be yours too. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to revisit this story that so many of us know of creation, where we've come from, how we've gotten here, and how we see ourselves and function in the world. And sometimes, Father, I know that our implicit memory, the things that we do that we aren't even aware of, we, we want to please, we want to be thought highly of, we want to work hard, we want our family to be in great shape, we want to to represent our family name well. We don't want to make a bunch of mistakes. We don't want to be seen as foolish. We just want things to go up and to the right. And when they don't, we're reminded of our own shame and failure and sin. We're reminded where we stumble all the time. And Father, when we do, I, I pray that you would help us remember that it's more likely that you feel sad with us than disappointed in us. Because yes, our choices cause pain and hurt, but we don't get our value from how amazing we are or how much we avoid sinning. Our value and worth is found in resting in the image that we are made in the image of our loving Heavenly Father. So I pray that you would help us to revisit that place, to tell that story to ourselves again and again and again. Father, we love you. We thank you for the time to start the new year in this way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.